Thank you, Stephen. It's exciting for us to be back here again. Up till Monday, we had no idea that we would even be able to come up for the funeral. I appreciate those who have expressed condolences uh, this morning. It really was a relief in many ways. Uh, I married my father and my stepmother 26 years ago, and she passed away. But for many of my children, she was the only grandmother on the Merck side of the family that they knew. And it was a good closure for us and a, a relief in many ways. She was so ready to be able to go and be with the Lord. And yesterday, it was really great uh, to have a family time and celebration and do all that. I really want to thank you all, especially. The last time I was here, you put on a roof for me. And now the carpet, and I was thinking in May, when we're back up for meetings, if you could just do a pool out here on the side, that would be so cool. And I just appreciate the thoughtfulness, uh, being able to come in and have those little special perks uh, all the way from Brazil. When Billy was reading the passage this morning, and I, I'm, I'm scared to death because I think I'm going to watch the Eagles game with him this afternoon, and he's probably going to kill me or poison the popcorn uh, after making him read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. You can open your Bible. We have a fascination with genealogies, family history. Now, this has gone on for millennia, but in the 1970s with the publication and then the, the television miniseries Roots, Alex Haley generated a generation of people who want to discover where they came from. There's lots of reasons to do that. For some people, it's a pride issue, an identity issue. My wife's family boasts of the fact of some distant Cox relative who came over with William of Orange to the United States colonies at the time. Her grandfather, Von Wurzen, from the Denmark, I think they were servants to royalty. So there are things that come out of our past that give us a sense of identity. For some people, importance, maybe pride. For some, it's a source of embarrassment because of the skeletons in the family closet. When some of us have watched the series The Crown on Netflix, very popular series, and we begin to understand a little bit more about the complicated succession of royalty, in England, we're fascinated to know if King Charles or Prince Charles is going to outlive the queen to actually make it to the throne or not. And if not, then what is the rest of the succession? And they have a list that goes down to 15, 17, 18, 20 names, depending on incidents and family ties. Years ago, someone dug up the Merck family tree. The Anentafel, their family Merck from Germany, back to the 1630s. Now, it's not a coincidence that most of the names on that family tree are represented by nuts. <laughs> but the family tree goes back, and the names are pretty similar. The profession, as well as listed, they were Buchbindern, bookbinders, or they were bricklayers, masons. My wife and I had the opportunity to be in Germany, not, well, several years ago, and to visit and to discover some of our, my ancient relatives' descendants. And it was fascinating to see that 
just like Stephen, who inherited the genes of woodworking and other projects, many of them are, them are woodworkers and others metal workers. And it's, it's stuck through the family genealogy for all of those years. So you begin to understand things about your own family history. On another side of my family, my son David, who has preached here, comes up uh, for the Preach the Word meetings. It's called Fellowship of the Word, right? David recently discovered that on the other side of my family, the Masland family, from Masland carpet fame, that my great-grandfather was wounded in the Civil War outside of Philadelphia in one of the major battles of the war. And it just so happened, as he and his wife were making a trip across state, that they went past the battlefield and he went to visit the trench where my great-grandfather was wounded a few days before the actual huge battle began. And it was interesting, as he related, the bullet actually struck him in the arm, but a few inches to the side, and our genealogy would have stopped there. So genealogies are fascinating, but I'm not so sure it's the way I would start a bestseller. And yet that's how Matthew... The author of this bridge book of Math, of, called Matthew, chosen to start the New Testament, begins the whole New Testament with the book of the genealogy of Jesus. I would have expected, and I, I write books, I like to write, I, I would never start a book saying, Walter begat Burwell David, Burwell David begat David. David begat Stephen. So why does the Bible, why does the, the biggest bestseller in the history of the universe, the New Testament, begin saying the book of the genealogy or the genesis? Huh, that's interesting. Because Matthew, just like John, as you've been studying for a long time here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A clear allusion to in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Matthew does the same thing. Except he makes a bridge to all of the fascinating aspects of Old Testament history, going back to David, going back to Abraham. Luke is actually going to go all the way back or go all the way up to Adam in Jesus' genealogy, the Son of God. Every evangelist has his perspective on the birth of Jesus. And as you've learned, each of the gospel writers is answering a question. Who is Jesus. Matthew's going to tell us Jesus is our king. And the Jews were looking for that Messiah king. Mark presents a servant. There's no genealogy of a servant. Mark tells us that, that Jesus was the active, busy servant of the Lord who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for us. Luke, who goes all the way back to Adam, presents Jesus in his humble birth, the God of the underdog, someone just like us. And John, 
in his own philosophical way, points to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Matthew has a very clear purpose when he begins saying this. The book of the genealogy, or literally the genesis, of Jesus Christ. Now, you need to know Christ, you probably know this, is not Jesus' surname. It's so often put together that it almost sounds like a surname, Stephen Merck, Hannah Sayer Merck. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's his title, Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. And that's going to be Matthew's special focus throughout this book. But then he goes right into the genealogy, and, and I made Billy read the whole passage so that we don't have to do that again, and I don't have to say all those names again. We're just going to look at them now from above. But verse 1 is the key to the whole thing. Matthew is most interested in telling us that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, it probably would have seemed more popular for him to have started his book in the New Testament saying something like, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. But different than Dickens, the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to teach us lessons, or we could say to pluck fruit from a family tree. Even the genealogies of the scripture are inspired, God-breathed, so that we would be transformed. We're going to discover five fruits from Jesus' family tree which mark Jesus as the beginning of a new age. In the beginning, Jesus. He is the Alpha and the, excuse me, the Omega. He is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Just as the book of Genesis begins in a certain way, showing what became of Adam, the first Adam, the book of Matthew in the New Testament will tell us what became of Jesus, the last Adam. And the start of a new age. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. This is the family tree of King Jesus. There are actually 41 names in the list. There are the names of a few women. That was exceptional. Women didn't make it into the typical Jewish genealogy. There were exceptions, especially these women. We'll look at that in a little bit. Some of the names, depending on the version that you use, will be a little bit different. For example, in the first line, Ram, in other versions, is called Aram. It's the same name. Asaph is called Asa. Amos is called Ammon. It's just a question of endings in the Greek original language. You'll notice that there are three sets of 14, but to generate three sets of 14, you have to finagle a little bit with the lists. For example, David has to be considered twice, but that's part of Matthew's purpose because Jesus is the son of David, the king of Israel. And so as we repeat the name of David at the beginning of the third line, and the wife of Uriah, his wife, who is anonymous, is not even mentioned here, but there's a reason for that as well. We come to 41 names that 
Matthew groups in three sets of 14 with David's being repeated in the middle and Jesus being the culmination of all of the history of the product of humanity. Here's what we want to learn today. From this genealogy, even from genealogies, Jesus, God teaches, and he wants Christmas for us to begin right here. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the promised blessing for all nations, all people. Jesus is one with mankind. Jesus, not Mary, is full of grace. Jesus is the goal of history. Did you notice the alliteration? It all begins with Jesus. <laughs> He's the focus of humanity. He's the focus of the universe. He is the reason for the season. That's how the New Testament begins. So let's look at the first fruit from this family tree of Jesus. Jesus is the king. The book of the Genesis of Jesus Messiah. Christ. Christos. The anointed one. It's the New Testament Greek form of the Old Testament word Mashiach, which is where we get the word Messiah. The anointed one. In the Old Testament, specifically, priests and kings were anointed. And you had to know your genealogy to qualify. The New Testament has a lot of other qualifications that are not genealogical. But for Jesus to be proven the legitimate heir to the throne of Israel, we have to know his bloodline. He is the son of David, verse 1. And then verse 6, we read, Jesse was the father of David, the king. Whenever you get an extra epithet description on one of the names of the, the list, you know Matthew's coming close to his purpose. And David was the father of Solomon. And then at the end of the passage, verse 12, excuse me, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, the Messiah, Christos, Mashiach, our priestly king, our kingly priest. He is the beginning and the end. He is the fulfillment of the promise to David. There will always be a, a descendant to sit on the throne of David, the throne of Israel, but oh, it's so much more. The throne of the world. Jesus is the heir to the Davidic promise, and it comes through Joseph. Now, here's one of the problems we face in this passage. If you were to look over at Luke chapter 3, Luke doesn't start his gospel with the genealogy. He starts his gospel reminding us that Jesus was a baby, like little Joanna, helpless, an infant just like us. And Luke will captivate us by showing us Jesus in his ministry. He is the, the humble, patient one who seeks and saves the lost. He only gets to a genealogy in chapter 3. And there his genealogy starts and goes back from Jesus all the way back to Adam because Jesus is the last Adam, and he is the Son of God. 
many people think that because the genealogies differ in Matthew and Luke, that Matthew is preserving the legal, legitimate right to the throne, but through the either Leverite marriage, when there was a death, and the marriage with a sister-in-law to generate a new descendant, or more probably through adoption. Jesus is the adopted son of Joseph because the end of the text makes it very clear that, verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, this whom is not Joseph, it's of whom Mary. Jesus was born of a virgin. And so Matthew preserves for us the kingly line through Joseph, the adoptive father, and Luke preserves for us the physical bloodline through Mary, but not contaminated because of the virgin birth. The virgin birth of Jesus, which comes right after. Look at chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Solves a major problem in the Old Testament in Jesus' kingship. Verse 18 through 25 is going to emphasize how Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, she's just engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Go down to verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, not from you. Verse 23, for the third time, emphasizes the importance of the virgin birth. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, with us God. In fact, the book of Matthew is going to end with Christmas. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make subjects of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded. And lo, Emmanuel, I am with you always till the end of the age. Matthew begins and ends with Christmas, with Emmanuel. And then verse 25 of Matthew 1, it says that Joseph did as the angel had said, but knew Mary not, a biblical euphemism for them coming together to generate children. This did not happen until after she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Yeshua. Yahweh saves Joshua in the Old Testament. Jesus, Savior. Now, I want you to go back to understand why it's important that this virgin birth take place. Open your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 22. All of this is embedded in this enigmatic genealogy that is full of fruit. Jeremiah 22. Oh, this is complicated, but I want you to stick with me. Verse 24. A man called Coniah, who is actually Jeconiah in the list, one of Jesus' descendants, actually one of his ascendants in his genealogy, is a bad dude. 
He is going to be king at the time of the deportation because of immorality, idolatry, cold-hearted Israel. They will go off to Babylon. And here's what God says about this man in Jesus' genealogy, verse 24 of Jeremiah 22. As I live, declares Yahweh the Lord, though Coniah, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand. That's the sign of royalty, the seal. Yet I would tear you off. Look at verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man, Coniah, down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. We have a big problem. God promises in Samuel that there will always be a descendant of David to sit on the throne. God says to Jeconiah, none of your descendants will sit on the throne. How are we going to solve that problem? Jump ahead to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah begins to give us a clue. That there's going to be a way. Jeremiah 33, verse 14 and 15. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Look at verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, burnt grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The book of Haggai begins to reverse this problem that we have. No one shall succeed. Someone will succeed. No one on the throne. Always someone for the throne. When in the end of Haggai, a prophecy to one of the descendants of, again, one of the people in Jesus' genealogy, the governor of the land is called a signet ring, a sign ring that God is putting back on his hand who will prosper and succeed. What is the answer to the problem? The answer to the problem is the virgin birth. What Matthew emphasizes, even when he mentions Jeconiah, all of his descendants seemingly eliminated from the possibility, even though if you had gone to City Hall in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth and started to put A and B together, you would discover that everything converged in Joseph and Mary. Jesus as Joseph's adopted child, Jesus as Mary's legitimate child with the Holy Spirit is the way that God circumvents the curse on all of the line and replaces a descendant of David on the throne. Jesus is king. All lines converge on him. If Jesus is king in a practical way for us, what are we supposed to do? Yes, sir, King Jesus. We obey his commands. We assume a commitment. Matthew's going to say that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, this other stuff. God will take care of that. 
You can't serve two masters. You either serve money and stuff or you serve the King Jesus. All authority is given to me. Go and make disciples subjects of King Jesus. We have our marching orders. That's our commitment. But Jesus is also the son of Abraham. Back to Matthew chapter 1. The book of the Genesis of Jesus, Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What do you think Matthew has in mind when he calls Jesus the son of Abraham? He's telling us that Jesus is the promised blessing. Not only the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, but with the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, 15, 17. God made a special promise to his son Abraham. Abraham, be a blessing. Abraham, father of many nations. In you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. I promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. God keeps his word. It took a long time, long awaited Messiah, but he came. The genealogies fit together perfectly. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Made of a woman, made under the law, the seed from Genesis 3 has arrived. The blessing from Genesis 12. The son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the lion of Judah from whose hand the scepter will not depart. The son of David, born in Bethlehem, of a virgin. Jesus fulfills it all. He is the Savior, the literal meaning of his name, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which teaches us a lesson. We have a commitment because Jesus is king, but we also have a commission, a co-mission. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Emmanuel, I am with you till the end of the age. Our mission is Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission is our mission to bless the ends of the earth. In Exodus chapter 19, you may remember the passage. We'll just mention it here. God says of Israel, you will be a nation of priests. Every Israelite, an emissary, a missionary a nation of missionary priests, representatives of the living, almighty God. That's why God blesses us. That's why Jesus came. We're blessed to be a blessing. I do want you to look at Psalm 67. Turn back in your Bible with one finger still in Matthew. Look at Psalm 67, phenomenal psalm. which also talks about our commission because Jesus is the promised blessing for all people. Psalm 67 begins and ends 
with a plea for blessing and an identification of blessing. That's the bread that makes up this sandwich. And, and the heart, the meat in this sandwich is be a blessing. The Abrahamic covenant. Look at what it says. And I'm going to emphasize the emphasis on our co-mission. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Everyone wants God's blessing. Why? That, verse 2, your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God has blessed us, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Eleven times in this missionary sandwich of the Abrahamic covenant, the purpose of our blessing is to be a blessing. The others-centered life is a Christ-centered life. That's what it means to glorify God. That's what it means to fulfill our commission. But let's go back to Matthew. Not only is Jesus king, which gives us some commandments and commitments to fulfill, the promised blessing, fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, which gives us a commission, but in the rest of the genealogy, we discover an amazing Consolation. Jesus is one with mankind. He's one of us. He's not a ghost. He injected himself in his holy blood as the only antidote against the venom of the Satan, of the serpent flowing in our veins since Genesis 3. Only the pure and perfect blood of Jesus can resolve that through the virgin birth, through his holy life, and through his identification with us as our kingly high priest. All of those other names are not just names. It's a reminder to us that Jesus became flesh and blood. Please understand, many people have a, an, an incorrect understanding of the incarnation. In Portuguese, the word incarnation is encarnação, which literally means the encarnação, the in-flesh action of God. The incarnation was Jesus taking on human flesh, not just until his assumption to heaven, forever. Our God entered human history, became a part of the flowing currents of humanity to be like us forever. Real flesh and blood, true humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt, made his tent among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
Jesus is one of us. The product of the ups and downs of a diverse family history, adopted into a real family with a real history, truly able to sympathize and identify with and represent humanity as our priest king. What a comfort to us. What a consolation. He cares for you. He will forever be your representative. He intercedes constantly. He is the highest of kings and the purest of priests. His family tree has a lot of nuts in it. Saints and scoundrels. Skeletons in Jesus' family tree closet. But also crowns. In fact, I want you to look just for a brief moment at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews really takes advantage of this idea of Jesus' real priestly, kingly humanity and applies it to our lives in a form of consolation. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, talking about us, Jesus' descendants, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, his blood, the antidote, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not of angels that he helps, it is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, us, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He is ever and forever one with us. That's why Matthew We'll have Jesus saying, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Stop wearing your own, your own fame, your own reputation. That golden mask is too heavy for you to handle. Take upon yourselves my yoke. I carry the weight. Learn from me. I am meek and humble. I am pursuing you with, with lassos of love. And you'll find rest for your souls. That's the Jesus who inserted himself into humanity. But back to the genealogy. A fourth fruit from Jesus' family tree is the fact that this genealogy includes saints and sinners. Saints and scoundrels. Skeletons in the family closet and crowns as well, just like you and me. John puts it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Catholic tradition has Mary being the fountain of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. 
It's a poor translation of Luke chapter 1, which actually says, Greetings, Mary, greatly graced. Who needs grace? God's grace has been poured out first on Mary. But Jesus is the fountain of grace. We learn that from Jesus' genealogy. Um, I, one of the books that we've done in Brazil is actually called The Grandparents' Legacy. And we talk a lot. I love to think about legacy and, and what will become of our family tree after us. And really encourage people. One of our books in Proverbs uses the illustration that some of you may have heard of the genealogy of Jonathan Edwards, perhaps the greatest theologian North America has ever produced, and a scoundrel named Max Jukes. And there's some great lessons to see what a godly heritage can produce. 1,400 descendants were studied of Jonathan Edwards, 1,200 of Max Jukes, and you can see what Jonathan Edwards' family line produced by God's grace through godly and pious living, transforming society, impacting the world, and Max Jukes a criminal. But the fact is, you and I, have saints and scoundrels in our family tree. Some of us may be embarrassed about our genealogy. Why in the world, when the Jews so valued a pure pedigree, would Matthew start his gospel with women of ill repute in Jesus' line? Tamar, incestuous wife of Judah. Rahab, who at least five times, her name is accompanied in the scriptures, Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. Even Ruth was another, the others also, foreigner, Moabite, hated excluded from the family of Israel till the 10th generation because of the way they treated their brother, Israel. Bathsheba doesn't even get mentioned in the list. She's just called the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Four Gentile women, four Gentile women, four Gentile women with questionable genealogies, they're all involved. They're included. And it gets worse if you look at the men. Now, that's not always the case. I want you to understand. I think I lost a slide here, Stephen, but we'll have to just go back to this one. Okay. The beginning of the list. Liars. Abraham. Liar. Isaac. Liar. Jacob, Israel, liar, cheat. Judah, incestuous, cheater. Idolaters, Solomon, Rehoboam, Ahaz, Manasseh. Child sacrificers, Ahaz, Manasseh. Adulterers, David, Solomon. This family tree has rotten fruit in it. And yet, God used that family to produce 
the Messiah. We all have skeletons, and we also have some crowns in our family closet. But John makes the point, as you've also seen in your series, after saying that Jesus tabernacled among men, he made his tent in human flesh, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And then he says this, all of us have received from his fullness and grace upon grace. It's a phrase that brings the idea of wave after wave of grace. He just loves to bless us. Jesus is full of grace. We don't deserve anything. The more you even try to pay him back, the deeper you dig a ditch of your debt. You can't even touch Jesus' sandal because you're not worthy of it. It's grace that you can do anything. Wipe a snotty-nosed kid in the nursery is beyond your merit. But Jesus is full of grace. And he pursues us with lassos of love. John MacArthur puts it this way, the genealogy of Jesus Christ is a beautiful testimony to God's grace and to the ministry of his son, Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. If he has called sinners by grace to be his forefathers, should we be surprised when he calls them by grace to be his descendants? The king presented here is truly the king of grace. And that's where the story ends. The book of the Genesis of Jesus, Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We come to verse 16, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Mary, Jesus, was born, who was called Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. What, what's that about? 14 generations. Well, the first thing is fascinating that while most of us try to identify build our identity from our parents and our grandparents and our, our, the Williams of Orange in our lives. But the genealogy of Jesus makes it clear that Jesus is the one who gives significance to all of his ascendants. He is the reason for the season. He's the point of the family tree. He is the fruit so many passages in the New Testament say that. Romans chapter 11, Paul gives his doxology, exalting for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. In the fullness of time, it all culminated in Jesus. Jesus in this list is the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is the beginning and the end, the author and consummator of our salvation. Perhaps the passage that I most like is in Ephesians chapter 1 which actually gives us the reason for the universe and why Matthew begins with Genesis of Jesus. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things 
in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What Paul says in Ephesians is that Jesus is the purpose of the universe. This word unite all things is the word to sum up. Everything is summed up in Jesus. God has exalted his name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But why? This technique of three blocks of 14, which summarize really the history of Israel, the patriarchs and the judges, the period of the kings, the captivity and silence. If you look at the, the last group, they're really a bunch of anonymous nobodies. The time of silence. The others were all kings on their throne, but it reminds us of one of the books of Narnia in the Hall of Kings and the decadence, and it gets worse and worse, and now there's nobody left on the throne until... The fullness of time. And then it all comes together. Three blocks of 14 are six blocks of seven. You cannot escape that kind of numerology in the Bible because seven is the number of perfection. That makes Jesus the initiator of the seventh period of seven. But where are his descendants? right here in this room. We are the descendants, the church, the commissioned ones, following King Jesus, the fulfillment of all promises, who is one with mankind, the blessings of the world, full of grace and truth, compassion, the consummation and goal of all history. But there's also another very curious fact in this genealogy as we come to a close. The number 14 is important because King David culminating in King Jesus, the name David in Hebrew. There are no numbers in biblical Hebrew. They use letters to represent numbers. So A is 1, B is 2, C is 3. The number that the name David represents is 14. 4 plus 6 plus 4. Dalit and Vav and Dalit. 4, 6, 4 gives 14. It looks like Matthew is using a memory device for us to understand. Even from the list of names, Jesus is the Davidic king who says at the end of his gospel, all authority is given to me, the scepter. In heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, Emmanuel, to the end of the age. So what's the big idea? This is royal grace. Royal grace that we have received. But it doesn't stop with us. Go! Tell it! Proclaim it! Live it! 
Royal grace received requires real grace given to others. That's the Christ-centered life. Our purpose is to lift up Jesus. That's what the genealogy does from the beginning to the end. It's lift him up. Royal grace received requires real grace given. Let me tell you a story. I don't even remember if I've done this here before, but I, I always think of it at Christmas season. One year during a furlough in New Jersey, we were able to get scholarships for all of our kids to study at King's Christian School. It was very expensive, and there's no way we would have been able to pay for that. And as part of the deal, I became kind of like a chaplain at the school. I spoke at all their teachers' conferences and missionary conference and everything else that could speak at. But it was at one of those times that the principal of the school told me a story about her little granddaughter at Christmas time was going to be in a, a, a theater production, a drama of the nativity. Little five-year-old girl was going to be married, and as is the case in these kinds of presentations, she had the little baby doll Jesus in the manger. Little six-year-old Joseph was by the side. And as things would have it, the shepherds came in and the wise men came in and there were camels and there were donkeys. And the stage was filled at the end as the curtain was closing. Little Mary grabs the doll Jesus by the feet, steps forward and does this. The curtain closes, everyone claps, and Grandma says, Honey, that wasn't in the script. Why did you do that? And her answer was simply, Grandma, there was so much stuff taking Jesus' place. I had to lift him up. Stephen started our service talking about that. So much stuff. Taking Jesus' place. But the genealogy of Matthew, the start to the New Testament, and the beginning of Christmas says, lift him up.